This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, you're in store for a very special episode. This week, we have Marshall Allen, an investigative journalist that has spent 15 years exposing the ways that the healthcare industry preys on vulnerable Americans. Marshall currently writes for ProPublica and was part of the team that was a Pulitzer finalist for their work in covering COVID-19. And in this special episode of Race to Value, Marshall spends time with us discussing his time investigating how the American healthcare system is leading patients to irreparable harm with adverse financial outcomes. Marshall's new book, Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win, is a bestseller. We couldn't be happier to have Marshall on this week. Daniel, I just think that this was one of our better episodes, and we haven't really had a discussion like this about patient financial literacy. I think it's such an important topic in this day and age. Yeah, Eric, I completely agree. It was a fantastic conversation with Marshall. You know, in the episode, we cover real-life victories as employers and employees fight the healthcare industry. And having the patient perspective in this is so eye-opening. And we're talking about dealing with price gouging, errors in billing, fraud, unnecessary treatments. I mean, Marshall has seen it all and he really gives employers and employees and not just any employee. I mean, I'm thinking about this for myself too, as I'm dealing with the healthcare system, despite years of experience in healthcare and learning so much about how to protect ourselves from being taken advantage of by healthcare delivery and payment systems that are legacy and status quo operations that are not working the, the way they should be. Well, Dan, I couldn't agree more except one thing. You know, the healthcare system is actually designed to perform this way, and it's a broken system. We have to make it better, and it has to happen this change through grassroots empowerment by consumers, and it has to come through employers finally waking up and doing what's necessary to hold the health system accountable 
and redesign benefits. So let's go ahead and hand it over to Marshall Allen as he joins us in this week's Race to Value. Marshall Allen, welcome to Race to Value. I can't tell you how excited we are to have you to today and talk about your new book, Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. Marshall, I was just thinking, you know, this is such a great conversation we're about to have and value-based care is of paramount importance in our country. And I'm really interested in your background and what value means to you. And I know you've been an investigative journalist for more than 15 years, really looking at how the healthcare industry preys on vulnerable Americans, but you also spent five years in full-time ministry, including three as an evangelical Christian missionary in Kenya. And then you had a master's degree in theology. And I read a quote from you. You said, some people say journalists are godless, but I spent five years in full-time Christian ministry. And my faith has made me a better reporter. When I read that and, and just really looked into your work and what inspires you in your writing on, on healthcare, what really resonated with me is here at the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, we believe that value-based care is not only an economic imperative. I mean, of course, we have to stay globally competitive. We're more than twice per capita spend as the number two country in the world. And we have all these cost drivers, but there's this moral imperative to yes. really fix healthcare. And I thought maybe that would be a great way to start our conversation. I really want to understand what drives you in the work that you do in healthcare. Well, I love that you're delving into the moral and ethical and philosophical foundation of this whole issue, because that really is what drives me personally. And I think it's also what makes my book unique compared to a lot of the other healthcare policy books that come out. I, I read all the healthcare books. I really enjoy them. I learn a ton from them. But my own perspective, one thing that's fun about writing a book is that I can really make an argument from my point of view, right? You wanna have an author who has a voice and who has a perspective and who makes an argument. And I think that you're hitting on the foundation of my argument is really a moral argument. And like you said, I, I'm a, a person of faith. I define myself as a Bible-believing, born-again Christian. You know? So I'm a, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I go to church every Sunday, I try and read the Bible and apply it to my life. And I believe very strongly in fairness and ethical behavior and treating people the way you would want to be treated. I mean, if you look at the golden rule, those are the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew, where he says, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. And it's not just a Christian belief, right? This is something that other religions also teach. This is something, even if people are not religious at all, they also believe that you should treat others as you want to be treated. And so when I started covering healthcare, I was so astonished to find over and over again that the system that we trust to take care of people and to heal people is actually completely violating these same principles that we would teach to our kids about how people should treat one another. There's not this idea of doing unto others as you would want them to do unto you. I mean, there is certainly on the clinical side, doctors and nurses, physical therapists, other people, pharmacists, anyone who's helping to heal patients, they're behaving that way. They're serving people, usually very selflessly, right? Taking care of them. But on the business side, we are violating the golden rule on the business side every day in American healthcare. And that's the kind of stuff I've documented as a journalist. And that's the kind of problems 
that I document in my book and also that other healthcare books have documented. So my argument really fundamentally is a moral argument because all this stuff is legal, or at least a lot of it is. I, I do have a chapter on healthcare fraud too, but a lot of this is legal. This is just the way our business of medicine has been conducted in the United States. It's been conducted to maximize the profit for the industry, even at the financial harm, the, the financial harm that it's causing to the individual patients. And so that is a big, a big thrust of my book. And then the other thing, way I'd say my book is unique is the book is called Never Pay the First Bill. And then the subtitle is, and other ways to fight the healthcare system and when. I'm really trying to tactically show a how-to guide for individuals and employers to fight back and win. And the winning is maybe the most important part because as you all know, there is a better way to get better value for our healthcare dollars here in the United States. And so we're seeing it adopted, we're seeing it happen. And so for individuals and employers, they can actually fight the system and do it in a different way and win. And by win, I mean getting much, much better healthcare for a much, much lower price. Well, Marshall, I'm thinking about this moral imperative that we have in fixing healthcare. And we all go into healthcare, whether or not you're a clinician or you're on their business side, we all go into it, generally speaking, with a sense of altruism. We want to help others. That's why we didn't go and, and make widgets somewhere. I mean, we really want to impact outcomes. And it seems like when one gets into the medical industrial complex, you just get beaten down. You become anesthetized to what really is, and I know you've seen this, the horrors at times of what happens to a patient when they're victim to excessive profiteering. And there's just so many ways that you can become victimized just because of the machinery of the healthcare system. And it's not a, the system is broken per se. It's performing exactly how it should. I mean, the system is designed to perform that way. And the people that are in the, in the system are really good people. They're people of faith. They're people with a conviction. They're people that have a calling. They believe in doing what's right. They believe in that golden rule. And there's a, a concept that you've talked about a lot about this sense of normalized deviance where you have this social normalization that happens when people within the same organization or industry become too accustomed to a deviant behavior. And it really compromises patient safety at, at some point and, and ultimately creates the level of victimization that we see. Could you speak a little bit about that in terms of your work and what you've seen in the industry, how people should be looking at the healthcare industry, and then how can we overcome this sense of normalized deviance and really look at a reframing opportunity for the American healthcare system? Well, I think reframing is really the key word, you know, and that's one thing I'm really trying to do with my book, where I just look at this through a different lens. And I, I've always covered healthcare and thought about healthcare from the point of view of the patient. They're the ones who have to navigate this fragmented, super complex, very opaque healthcare system where you can't even typically get the prices up front. You might get hit with a massive bill on the back end. And reframing it so that we don't just accept something that is wrong as right. And I think the traditional way 
for the people who are within the system, the way they look at it often is, well, this is a business. It's a way that we make money. This is how we feed our families. This is how we get our bonuses. This is how we get our paychecks. This is just the way it's always been done. And so if you look at our healthcare system, it's a system that has said that it's okay to profiteer based on people's sickness. It basically has allowed the exploitation of people's sickness for profit. And that's not an ethical position. That's a smart business way to operate, but that's not an ethical way to operate when you consider healthcare compared to something like, I don't know, going out to eat at a restaurant or taking a vacation to a resort or going and buying a big flat screen television. Those are all purchases that you can make discretionary. You don't have to buy a big TV or you don't have to go on a vacation or you don't have to go eat at a restaurant. So if someone takes advantage of us based on a discretionary choice we make as consumers, well, that's buyer beware. We don't have to buy an expensive TV or pay too much for a vacation. But when it comes to our healthcare, people cannot help when they get stricken with cancer or when their child gets in an accident or when you have to go to the hospital. These are not choices that we make based on luxury or our own discretion. And so what's happened is the industry has found ways to exploit that inelastic demand that's built into the medical systems. So let's just take something like insulin for diabetes. Well, a diabetic cannot choose whether or not they're going to take insulin. Diabetics need that. And yet there was a Senate Finance Committee report that came out in, I think it was in 2020. It kind of got lost in the media coverage, but I think it was just a brilliant report. Because they looked at, I think they said 100,000 pages of internal pharma documents, and they had all the pricing, they looked at all the rebate structures, and what they showed was this exponential increase in the price of insulin over the last 10 to 20 years, without any actual improvement in the drug, in the insulin that people were getting. It was a completely unjustified price increase. It was just done, frankly, to make profit for the companies that make the insulin at the expense of the diabetics who need the insulin. And the report showed that diabetics were having to go without their insulin or they were having to ration their insulin because they could not afford to pay the monthly cost for that insulin that they needed to stay healthy. That is morally wrong to profiteer based on someone's sickness. And that's just been the way the business has worked. And so people within the business are getting paid salaries, they're getting paid bonuses, they're feeding their families, and these are quote unquote good people within the system. Well, at a certain point, I've talked to a lot of these good people who work in the system. They become sources for my stories. They tip off journalists and tell them what they should write about because they see that the system is not designed for the best interests of the patient or the public. The system is designed to maximize the profit for the company or the corporation or the shareholders. That's fine in a lot of businesses, but it's different in healthcare. And so that's really one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that we as the patient have been being exploited based on our sickness. And this is the way the business works. Like you said, and like I said in the book, our healthcare system isn't broken. It was made this way. This is what for-profit medicine looks like in the United States. And yes, sometimes it results in innovation, which is great, which can help people. 
but often it results in just making us pay more than we should for the same old insulin that we've been getting 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So when you see that the system is built this way and that this deviance has become normalized, when you're a patient or an employer, you should not expect the people in the system who are operating as the system is designed to give you a better deal for your healthcare dollar. We're gonna to have to put our foot down as the people paying for healthcare and say, we demand better value for our dollar. We demand that you don't charge me one price and then charge someone else five times more for the exact same thing. That's not fair especially when you see that it's resulting in one in five Americans having medical debt in collections. That was a JAMA study that just came out about two weeks ago that showed one in five Americans has medical debt in collections. And the overall burden of this debt is about $140 billion. That's a billion with a B. So this expense of our healthcare is crushing the American people and it's the worst for working Americans. And so my book is a step-by-step -step tactical guerrilla guide to help patients hack the healthcare system so that they can identify where they're being overcharged. They can identify errors in their medical bills. They can identify how to avoid overtreatment so they, they don't end up having to pay for care that they didn't even need in the first place. And then the book also shows employers what they can do to push back against the system so they can save 30, 40, even 50% a year on their healthcare costs while delivering better benefits for their employees. It is possible and people are doing it right now. We just need to have people understand how the system works and then have the courage to push back against that normalized deviance that's costing them so much money. Marshall, you touched on a lot of really important things there, and we're going to circle back to many of them. I just wanted to start by asking you about the approval of the new Alzheimer's drug recently. That, and there's significant implications on the healthcare costs in our country as this is a, a first new major treatment for Alzheimer's that's been approved by the FDA in almost 20 years, Aduhelm carries a hefty price tag of $56,000. But from what I've read, there's conflicting evidence about the efficacy of the drug from clinical trials. If you run the numbers, if you have a million Medicare beneficiaries who receive Aduhelm, which may even be on the low end of expectations, spending on that drug alone would exceed $57 billion in a single year. Even if you get only two to 300,000 Alzheimer's patients, we're talking upwards of 17 billion. And currently Medicare spends 600 billion on Alzheimer's care. And unless the drug is somehow transformative in delivering better outcomes, the price is not really justifiable. So just curious with your introductory remarks about the cost of drugs, you know, you referenced insulin, we've got big pharma PBMs, there's patient fleecing happening. If you could Share your thoughts on, on the Adelhelm specifically, and then any other comments you'd like to make on the topic. Well, I don't, I don't really have any specific thoughts on that particular drug, just because that's not something that I've, I've researched in depth myself. I mean, I read the headlines and I saw the, the controversy over it, just that it's in some ways not even effective, apparently, according to the reports I read. And yet it's got this hefty price tag and some are saying that it should never have been approved. So I, that's not something I can comment on myself. But what I can say is drugs are approved all the time that don't actually bring about a big improvement. 
in terms of helping people or healing people, it's very common for these drugs to be kind of these me too drugs, you know, where it's just a, maybe a little tweak on a formula that already exists. And it's not anything that's that revolutionary, but there are all these scams, frankly, in the way that the system is, is put together. Like I can, I can give you an example of one that I experienced myself. It was a drug that was a combination of two over-the-counter medicines that were combined to create a specialty drug. I'm, I'm just pulling the box out right here because I keep it in my desk. You can hear me shaking it here. It's called Vimovo. And Vimovo is a drug that was created by Horizon Pharma. It's a combination of two over-the-counter medicines that they use to create a specialty drug. So if you look at Vimovo, Vimovo was created by Horizon Pharma as a specialty drug, and it's a combination of two cheap generic over-the-counter medicines, Aleve and Nexium. So the Aleve is a pain reliever, and then the Nexium theoretically is supposed to help with an upset stomach that's caused by the pain reliever. Now, if you were to buy these two over-the-counter medicines, your price tag would be about $30 if you went down to your local pharmacy. But when my orthopedic specialist prescribed this to me, the charge to my insurance plan for this Vimovo was more than $3,000. And so that's what Horizon Pharma has done. They've created a drug that's a combination of two really inexpensive over-the-counter medicines, and they waive the copay for the patient and they use a special mail order pharmacy to send this drug to the patient's home. And then that gives them access to the patient's health plan so that they can bill the insurance plan of patients. So in my case, the insurance company rejected that claim. But when I wrote my story about this for ProPublica, they were at almost half a billion dollars that had been paid for Vimovo. And I looked even more recently and it was over $600 million that has been spent by health plans on Vimovo. So this is a, a profiteering scheme. This is not an actual improvement in the drug that's actually a breakthrough that's worth the money. And so this drug is just a, a scheme, really. It's an unethical scheme to take more of people's money than it should. And it's a way to trick patients into getting on the drug so that the drug company can get access to their health plan. And this type of thing happens a lot. You know, there's a lot of these ways, these hidden ways that, the healthcare industry finds to tap into our health plans and suck more money out of our health plans than they should. And it's, it's really what is driving up the cost of care in the United States. It's not because the medication is actually that expensive. It's because it's being bundled in a way that allows them to overcharge us for it. Marshall, and thinking about the cost of drugs, I can't help but think about the $445 bill that you talked about in the introduction to your book. And for our listeners out there that haven't yet had a chance to to read the book, your dad, you know, 80 years old, great health, except for he's experiencing dementia. Your mother put him in a long-term care facility to get the assistance that he needs. And I won't summarize the whole story, but there was clearly a breach of consent. 
there was some treatment rendered. You ended up getting a bill, I think, for Flowmax for $445, and that set in motion some things for you, which came to life in a very real way where you're having to navigate the health system and figure out how not to pay that bill. And I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, feel free to share any details on that story, but also what did you learn about that experience and and being on the other end as a patient advocate and trying to navigate the morass of the health system and and fight a unnecessary bill. Yeah, it was really interesting to go through that experience right when I was writing my book. And I often have people ask me, did, did you get motivated to write your book because of your own healthcare situation? And the answer is no. I, I got motivated to write the book because I get calls and emails every day from patients who are getting financially ruined by the healthcare system. And so I wrote the book to equip and empower them so that they could be better able to fight these battles on their own because there aren't enough journalists to write all these stories. There aren't enough advocates to help all these patients. And I also know that when patients are equipped and empowered, they have a tremendous ability to turn things around within the healthcare system. We have so many numbers on our side as patients. We probably have, if you just look at working Americans or people in employer-sponsored health plans, I bet we have 185 million Americans who are being exploited and taken advantage of by the healthcare system. If even 1% or 5% or 10% of that 180 million or so were to push back against the system and demand itemized bills, challenge any billing inaccuracies, really stand up against the system. I even have a chapter in the book about how to sue in small claims court when you're being taken advantage of. If we were to do that in any numbers, we would completely disincentivize the healthcare system from playing all these games with us. And so the book really shows the strategy and what we can do. But with my own family's battle, so that actually happened after I got the book deal. So in the fall of 2019, I'm starting to work on my book. My mom has power of attorney over my dad because my dad has dementia. And so he's unfortunately not able to make his own medical decisions. And she had checked him into this facility. And she had said that he would be going to his own primary care doctor while he was there because she could take him in and out of the facility and take him to his own doctor who knew him and had his history already. Well, little did she know there was a, an automatic upon admission primary care examination done of my dad. And it was done without her consent. She was not involved in the care, which I don't know how you do an examination of a, of a dementia patient anyway and get a full history of the patient without the caregiver there at all. But my mom was not at all involved in this visit. And by the way, my mom was at this facility every day, so I don't quite know how they did it without my mom knowing, but she ended up having this examination done of my dad. And then separate from that, the same nurse practitioner that did this examination got a refill request from a long-term care pharmacy in my dad's name for a drug that he had never actually been prescribed. So it was a new patient for the nurse practitioner. She just approved the Flomax prescription. My dad gets put on this drug, again, without my mom knowing, and that caused a severe cognitive decline in my dad. My mom noticed the decline, but she didn't know why it had happened because she didn't know that he had been put on this drug. Well, she was checking her pharmacy records about a month later, my dad's pharmacy records, 
And thankfully, my mom does look at those records because she saw that he had been put on this drug. And she immediately realized, and we also looked up the drug and the possible side effects, and we could see that this could have had a negative effect on my dad's dementia. And so immediately they took him off of it, to their credit. My mom called and the facility took him off the drug and he really bounced back right away. His cognition improved. He actually got a lot better. So I don't think there was any long-term harm done to my dad because of that, thankfully. But then we ended up getting a call from the nurse practitioners group, the billing department, saying, hey, we did this examination um, on, on your husband and we need his Medicare um, number so that we can bill Medicare for this exam. And my mom said, what exam? What are you talking about? Well, that's how we found out that there had been this violation of my mom's power of attorney. Well, then the irony was they were coming after the family of the author of never pay the first bill for payment of a bogus medical bill. So I was like, wow, here we go. I've, I, have, I have a perfect case study right here. And, and it turned out to be the introduction of my book. Well, so what I learned in that process was that oftentimes it is not easy to push back. They're not just gonna roll over. When you say, hey, you violated my mom's power of attorney by doing this examination, they're not going to just admit that. They're not going to just be agreeable and say, oh, sorry about that. Let us um, make sure we don't bill you for this. Sometimes it's going to take you getting your evidence together. And so we were able to look at the medical records that were filed with the facility. And we could see that there was some confusion when my dad got admitted between the facility and the nurse practitioner's doctor group. So we could see that they were misunderstanding. So usually this nurse practitioner would have provided the care for other patients in that facility. But in my dad's case, that had not been approved. Well, so I can see where there was the confusion. But then the nurse practitioner's billing department would not back off. And so it took a lot of persistence, emails, phone calls, and basically insisting that we were not going to back down until this had been taken care of. And in my family's case, I think the bill came to about $440. My mom could have paid that bill. She could have paid it. She could have given my dad's Medicare number to the nurse practitioner's billing department. And they probably would have paid the bill and everyone would have gone away and been happy. But for my mom and for my brothers and I, we just knew that this wasn't the right way to handle it. It's not right to do this examination without my mom's consent and without my mom's involvement. They also build it, by the way, at a level five examination, which means that it was an extended examination and an extended medical history was supposedly taken. So again, this to me was an example of upcoding, which I also write about in the book, which is where a hospital or a doctor billing department bills you for a much more intensive type of care than the patient actually received. To me, this is the most common type of fraud that's happening in, in the country right now. I think it happens on so many of the bills that I review for patients. And so we were able to get them to back off. But what I was doing as I was gathering the bill, getting the itemized bill, getting the medical records, keeping a paper trail of all these conversations, I was preparing to sue them in small claims court. And we would have done that, but eventually they saw my brother actually notify them and said, hey, have you looked, have you noticed that my brother's an investigative journalist? And I almost wish he hadn't have said that because it kind of spoils the case study, you know, but I, I don't know if they looked me up. I don't know what happened next, but 
they agreed that it would be prudent in their words to waive the bill and to let the whole thing go. So you never quite know why they're gonna back off, but I have found that when patients are persistent and when they don't give up and when they keep appealing to what's right, often the hospital or the billing department for whoever it is will back off. And I have found that small claims court is incredibly effective because patients don't need an attorney to file a case in small claims court. Many times the limits of small claims court are plenty high to deal with these common medical bills. And think about from that doctor group's perspective or a hospital's perspective, if they get sued, they're often typically gonna to have to hire an attorney themselves for hundreds of dollars an hour. So that doctor group would have had to hire an attorney for hundreds of dollars to defend themselves against an unfair, unnecessary $400 bill that they were trying to get out of my mom. So it's not worth their while. And so when you file a lawsuit in small claims court, it's not probably gonna to go to court, but what it's gonna do is give them the incentive that they need to come to the table and treat us fairly. Because it's not that we don't wanna pay our bills, we just don't wanna pay bills that are inaccurate or unfair or overpriced. Well, Marshall, I'm thinking about the the small claims court and you know, it's such a, a novel concept, you know, in the healthcare setting. We don't typically think about that, but you know, I know in some states you can file a case and the limits are as high as, you know, twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars. It's pretty easy to file it online. And it's really a great opportunity, I think, for patients to find recourse in the judicial system, you know, to counteract this price gouging. And and I'd love to hear more about that. But also, you mentioned some other important things that can really empower the consumer in your book. You've talked about the battlefield consent. You've talked about the importance of getting itemized charges. Can you walk us through maybe the construct and how you would summarize some of the big thoughts in your book in terms of that consumer empowerment and and how a consumer or a patient that's facing the scenario of being fleeced by the healthcare system, how they can seek remedy and recourse in the system, in the judicial system or anywhere else? Yeah, so I, I broke the book out into individual chapters to try and address the most common types of problems that patients would have. And then I have three chapters for employers to show what employers can do, some, some general principles that can be applied. And the first section of the book is really looking at how to fight. You know, if you're in a situation like we were in with my mom and dad's medical bill, we had to fight that on the spot. The second section of the book is really looking at avoiding the need to fight. So often we talk about the problem of unnecessary treatment. Unnecessary care is costing hundreds of billions of dollars a year in this country because whether we needed the care that we received or not, we're still going to get a bill for it. So if patients can learn how to avoid unnecessary care, they can save themselves and their health plans a ton of money and the potential harm of undergoing medical care that always carries a risk with it. So in that case, I recommend that people ask some questions of their doctor or their nurse practitioner or whoever the clinician is before they undergo some type of discretionary care. Let's say you're, you're trying to decide if you should get some imaging test or be put on a certain medication or undergo a procedure. And it's not real obvious what the path forward is. Well, if you know that the healthcare system is generally incentivized, you know, under the fee for service payment model to give you care, whether you need it or not, if you know that's the case, 
and you're a patient, then you know that you should be skeptical and cautious anytime they're pressing you to get some type of treatment that you might not actually need. And so the question I think people can ask that to me is the most valuable one is ask your doctor, again, this is discretionary care, not, not like an emergency, but ask your doctor, what happens if we wait? What happens if we don't take action right now? Instead of telling me that you're going to give me some treatment or put me on a drug, let's consider what it would be like if I didn't go on it. Would I be harmed? Would I drop dead when I walk out of your office? Would I infect someone around me? Or would I become so emergent that I would have to admit myself to the hospital going through the emergency room the next day? Often the answer to those questions is no. It's, it is safe and it is smart to take a minute, leave that appointment, maybe get a second opinion, do some research on medline.gov or on Google Scholar, get some second opinions, gain some more knowledge and consider maybe there's another type of treatment that would be better for you. Or maybe you could just watch and wait and not do anything at all. So sometimes it's a battle, like my case with the medical bill with my mom. I mean, that was a real hassle. It took a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, some uncomfortable conversations. But if you can just avoid the care that you don't need, that's not a battle at all. That's just being a savvy consumer who's aware of the incentives and how those incentives might be steering the care that you need. I, I know you, you guys talk a lot about value-based care. Think about the way the incentives are different if someone's paid on a capitated payment versus a fee-for-service payment. So let's say like often Medicare Advantage plans, they'll get a certain amount of money to provide all the care that a patient needs, say for a given month. Well, in that case, the incentive is not to do more whether the patient needs it or not, in some cases, the incentive might be to do less, right? So you got to make sure that they're still delivering the care that they need. But those incentives end up driving a lot of the care people receive. And you see that in the research. You see how when doctors own MRI centers, they end up doing more MRIs than places where they don't own the MRI centers. That's one example. Another example of avoiding the need to fight is how sometimes you can save a lot of money by paying cash instead of running something through your insurance plan. And people don't quite realize how crazy healthcare pricing is, but always ask for the cash price. And don't let them tell you that if you have insurance, you have to use your insurance. There is no law that says you need to use your insurance if you have it. Do not let them tell you that. Always ask for the cash price and then see if it makes sense for you to pay cash instead of using your insurance plan. Now, you won't be able to apply it to your deductible if you pay cash but it still might save you a lot of money and it might make a lot of sense for you and your family. And then another tip when it comes to avoiding the need to fight is looking at price variation. So another thing that patients never expect and employers even are completely unaware of a lot of times is that there is a massive difference in the price that you can pay for the exact same type of treatment or service or drug, depending on where you go. So a, a really interesting example of this is for MRIs. MRIs or CT scans or x-rays are shown to be much more expensive in the hospital than they are if you go to an independent imaging center. And so you can save hundreds or even thousands of dollars by going to an independent imaging center or an independent lab if you need some type of blood work than having it done in the hospital. And so if you know that tip, 
well, then you can steer yourself away from the overpriced care and steer yourself to the value priced care, knee replacements or any type of procedure, colonoscopies. This is true for everything. Giving birth to a baby. One hospital might charge you $10,000. Another might charge you $30,000. Well, if you know that in advance, then you can go and reward the hospitals and the doctors who are giving us fair prices. And frankly, we need to shun the ones who are overcharging us and giving us high prices because you're not getting more for your money when you pay extra for healthcare. It's not like buying a fancy car or buying a fancy house. You're not getting more. You're not getting something better if you get a knee replacement at an overpriced hospital compared to a knee replacement at a reasonably priced hospital. You can still get quality of care and not overpay for it. And so those are the kinds of things I'm trying to help people understand about the way the system works and then how to navigate through it. Marshall, you know, you've touched on something that's really critical here, and that's the financial health literacy and a patient's ability to navigate their healthcare billing and financial responsibility. I mean, patients with a high financial health literacy can make sense of their medical bills. They can figure out what they owe when they owe it. They're empowered to negotiate medical bills or enroll in payment plans. But like regular health literacy, which measures a person's ability to make sense of and use health information, financial health literacy is left wanting. According to 2019 polling from Waystar, 38% of healthcare consumers did not know the cost of their healthcare would vary across different facilities to the point you were just making. And about a quarter of patients said understanding a charge master list or the list of the raw prices is too complex. And 23% said they did not know how to price shop. All of these are concurrently happening as hospitals are facing requirements from CMS to make data about shoppable services available online. And so I'm thinking about ambulatory EDs, uh, hospital EDs. I'm thinking about ambulatory surgery centers and, and the like, and just healthcare literacy in general for patients. And is there a way that I know you're working on helping patients, consumers learn and become more savvy with their healthcare financial literacy. Can you tell us about that curriculum and how they can learn about medical billing schemes and various scenarios to avoid so they're more empowered consumers? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. I'm, I'm on a big kick and, and the book is a part of it to boost people's healthcare literacy. And I've heard people refer to this as financial wellness. We often see that employers are changing their health plans. So they put more of the onus on the patient, on the employee to figure out how to navigate the healthcare system. But they haven't really equipped employees on how to do that. And so I'm on a kick now with the book. And also now I've created a, a company called Allen Health Academy. And what we're doing there is taking the principles that are in the book and creating a series of short videos so that people can easily get the knowledge that they need to have a base level of understanding about how the healthcare system works. And so this is something that we currently have these videos in production. If people want more information about this, they can go to marshallallen.com. That's my website. And they can sign up for my newsletter. And when they sign up for the newsletter, they'll see that I'm going to be rolling this out in a crowdfunding campaign soon to help finance the production of the videos, because our goal is to make these videos extremely engaging, interactive. They're going to have a lot of graphics and animation so that 
my goal is to roll these out to employer-sponsored health plans, to individual consumers, so that people can get this base knowledge of healthcare literacy and understand the price variation, how common unnecessary care is, how to get an itemized medical bill, how to get your medical records, how to sue in small claims court. People have never really thought about this before. They've been too passive and, and I've been passive too in the past. I think we've been conditioned by the healthcare system to trust that the system is gonna work in a way that's gonna be safe and fair and financially okay for us. And I think now we have 20 or even 30 years of data that shows that this system has not been operating in a way that's fair for us. And year after year, we keep getting charged more while we get less for our money. And it's not a fair way for the system to operate. I know it's a big ask. And I know some people, I think, frankly, are too condescending and paternalistic to patients. And they say, well, patients are never going to do this or patients can't figure this out. And I know that a lot of patients can't figure this out or they're too sick to work through all these things. But I also know that a lot of patients can figure this out and they are so tired of being ripped off. They know they're being ripped off. So they are feeling very motivated to take this type of information and apply it. And if, as I said before, if we even had a small portion of patients applying this knowledge, they would save themselves hundreds or even thousands of dollars possibly with every healthcare interaction and their health plans would save a lot of money, which could also bring premiums and deductibles down. And they would completely change the way the healthcare system engages with patients. Let me give you an example. Surprise medical bills have been the bane of the public's existence with regard to healthcare over the past say 10 years. These out of network doctors, anesthesiologists, emergency room doctors, radiologists, they have no contracted rates with insurance plans. And so they send these massive surprise out of network bills to patients. These are one of the leading causes of medical debt for patients. What if every time you got hit with an overpriced, unfair, out-of-network bill, the patient was to respond with a lawsuit in small claims court for the amount of the overpriced bill? I think that that would then force all of these doctor groups to hire attorneys to defend themselves against their own unethical practices. It would completely be a game changer because they would have no incentive to pursue a powerless patient for money that they shouldn't be trying to get out of that patient. I think we just need to think about this differently. We need to be more strategic and we need to be willing to bring the fight to them. And I know that a lot of patients are willing to do that. And a lot of employers are willing to do that. And in the book, I highlight the people who are doing it already and who are winning. And then those people can be the guides for the rest of us. So I'm really feeling optimistic because I know people can win when they fight back. They just need to learn how to fight back and then have the courage to do it. Well, Marshall, I'm, I'm thinking about this, and it could be a game changer if there was an increased level of healthcare financial literacy. Patients learn how to fight back and win. It seems like that would tip the scales in favor of the, the consumer. But also, you know, I can't help but think about employers in this equation too. And you, you mentioned that briefly earlier. You know, I've heard you talk about how employers are these sleeping giants. They're in the fight, 
but you know, up until this point, they haven't really woken up and realized it. I mean, right. they've, they've had this drag on the balance sheet. They've just tolerated double-digit increases every year in their healthcare costs. There's 157 million Americans that are covered by employer-based insurance, and there's $880 billion in employer spend and premium dollars and medical costs. And then you have poor health on top of that, yeah. which is costing another probably five to $600 billion. I'm really interested in your thoughts about employers waking up to this as well. You have the individual employees that are doing their part, fighting the fight on at a grassroots level, but then the employers have a lot of momentum going their way. I mean, certainly the, the Haven experiment didn't really pan out, but that's not done. There's a lot happening, and I wanted to see if you could maybe share your thoughts about how that can create a catalyst towards reshaping or reframing healthcare to where employers and patients are are really valued as the most important customer, which they just quite frankly aren't right now. I think that's a great point. There's a ton of momentum and I think it's still in the very early stages. So I don't want to overstate this, but you are seeing employers who on their own or by banding together with other employers are finding ways to save a lot of money while getting better healthcare benefits for their dollar. So again, this is not about making the amount of coverage and the amount of care worse or denying employees the care that they need. This is about doing things in a smarter way so that the premiums and deductibles can be reduced while the benefits actually get better. It's so contrary to the way we've been thinking about it, but you're seeing now employers enter direct contracting relationships with primary care doctors or specialists or hospitals. You're seeing them use alternative ways to get their drugs, specialty drugs or generic drugs, which are saving a lot of money. You're seeing them see through the games that the pharmacy benefit managers are playing and say, hey, we want to make sure that if there are any rebates with our drugs, we get all the rebate. I mean, sadly in the past and currently in a lot of cases, they're not even getting the rebates on the money that they're spending on drugs or they're spread pricing in their pharmacy benefit plan and they don't know about it. So we're now seeing them push back. They're reading the fine print in contracts. They're entering into direct pay relationships that cut out the middlemen. Again, the problem isn't the doctors and the clinicians on the front line. Generally speaking, they're victims of this system too. They're having to deal with all the middlemen who are really piggybacking on the care they provide. And so you're seeing a lot of innovation happen. I was talking to an employer the other day who banded together with other employers and they bought their own imaging center. They fund that themselves. And that's something that they've had a lot of success with. And it saved a ton of money because now the employees don't have to go to the hospital for the expensive images that they need. And again, this is not about getting worse care. This is about getting better care for a lower price. And so I'm really hoping that my book will inform and educate the employees and the employers so that they can work together to come up with some of these more innovative arrangements that really are value-based, disruptive, cutting the cost by 30 or 40%. Not some little thing that the industry says is value-based that actually doesn't make that big of a difference. We're talking about chopping out huge amounts of wasteful spending from the system so that the employers and the employees can get better care at a lower price. 
Marshall, let's talk about other ways that the system is not working. We've talked about waste. We've talked about unnecessary care. We've got another issue that's happening that you know organizations are incentivized to upcode and to maximize the revenue that they get from coding. And, and a lot of that can be legitimate because they need to understand the complexity, the, the acuity of the patient. But you've got uh, the Office of the Inspector General in 2020 that released a report that found that hospitals are overbilling or upcoding to the tune of a billion dollars. And on average, employers in the States lose between six and 25% of their healthcare spend on fraud and waste. And that's money that could be redirected to help grow the organization or to better help serve their employees. And the National Health Care Anti-Fraud Association estimates that the financial losses due to healthcare fraud are in the tens of billions of dollars each year. And the Journal of American Medical Association estimated in 2019 that the cost of waste in the health system ranges from $760 billion to $935 billion annually. So the result is higher costs for employers and their employees for each of us. I'm thinking that you probably have a story you could share and some thoughts about uh, what you've run into about fraud and upcoding. Well, I'm glad you brought up wasteful spending and fraud, because if we just cut that out of the system, we could reduce overall healthcare costs probably by about 25%, maybe even a third, maybe 33%. The estimates of the amount of wasteful spending, which includes fraud, overtreatment, administrative costs, ridiculous prices, all those things together, it could be as much as a trillion dollars a year or many hundreds of billions of dollars a year. With fraud, I think that people underestimate how incompetent many of the big insurance companies are at processing claims and paying claims. I did a story that was one of the most remarkable ones that I've, I've ever done out of the state of Texas about a guy who was a personal trainer who just called himself a doctor, and then he signed up for national provider identifier numbers. These are NPI numbers. They're given out by Medicare. And these NPI numbers are the numbers that are used on every healthcare claim that gets submitted to an insurance company to get payment. Anybody can sign up for an NPI number right now on the Medicare website, and Medicare does not even verify that those people who apply are actually doctors. It's something they could check, but they just don't check it. So this guy got all these NPI numbers and he started submitting bills to United Healthcare, Aetna, Cigna, the big insurance companies. And over a span of about four years, he billed these insurance companies for about $25 million. And he got paid more than $4 million. The crazy thing is they caught him within about a year doing this but they are so passive with the way they police doctors and hospitals with coding that they let him go on and on and on again. They would say, hey, we've identified that you're not a doctor. And so we overpaid you this amount of money. And if you don't stop, if you don't pay us the money back, we are going to dock your future payments so that we get repaid the money we owe. Well, that's absurd. Why would there be future payments when the guy isn't even a doctor to begin with? This guy, David Williams, is now in federal prison. But his case was so interesting because all of these heads of the special investigative units for these insurance companies testified in the case about the way they actually monitor fraud. And what you found is 
they let these claims sail through without even checking them. They auto adjudicate almost all the claims. It's computers processing them. And as long as the claim form is filled out correctly, it gets paid. And so they're very slow to identify the fraud. And then they're very passive in terms of bringing about accountability. That's a great story, Marshall. And I also wanted to ask you about a story that you had written about earlier in your career when you were in Las Vegas. I believe it was around the work visas for foreign trained physicians. I remember reading something about that a few years ago, but could you speak a little bit about that as well as why we talk about so many patients being victimized, but we often don't realize that there's physicians out there and foreign trained physicians are about 30% of the doctors in the workforce. And you've uncovered a pretty significant scenario where there was manipulation or untoward efforts being exerted on physicians to to practice outside of the, the medical norm. And as I think about that, you know, I just can't help but think about everything else going on with physicians too. And we talk a lot about that on our show with moral injury that's happening in the physician workforce. I just wanted to ask you about that story, but then also maybe if you have any other comments, employers are being hurt, patients are being hurt, but then you have the physician that's in the middle of this that got into healthcare to do the right thing, and then they're being irreparably harmed as well. Yes, that's correct. This was my real entree into investigative reporting about the healthcare system. I found out through a doctor who was working in Las Vegas that some doctors in the Las Vegas community were exploiting foreign-born doctors through this program called the J-1 Visa Waiver Program. And the J-1 Visa is the visa that foreign medical graduates would get when they come to the United States to do their residency training. And they would get this waiver that allowed them to stay in the United States and eventually get a green card if they agreed to work in these underserved areas, you know, like blighted urban areas or rural communities where American-born doctors were not available or willing to work. So this is something that the federal government put in place. It's a great program. It brings more foreign doctors into our communities and provides care to people who need it. So it's a really valuable program. And these foreign doctors are the brightest of the bright from all different countries. Well, the problem is, you had employers who were sponsoring the visas of these foreign medical graduates. And some of these employers were extremely unethical. So they would overwork these doctors. They would work them 100, 120 hours a week. They would underpay them. They would cheat them out of their contracts. And they would divert them away from the underserved areas and the clinics where they were supposed to be working there. And they would direct them to the more ritzy, high-paying hospitals in Las Vegas. It was a completely unethical program. I mean, I wrote this story and they actually changed some of the laws in Las Vegas and in Nevada to correct some of these problems. But I saw this happening all over the country. It wasn't just happening in Nevada. It was all over the place that different business people were exploiting this system to the point that we called this series of stories indentured doctors because it literally was an indentured servitude position that these doctors were being put into. Marshall, thanks for all this great information. I just want to say we're really appreciative of having you with us today. And I thought a good place to kind of wrap up the conversation would be to talk about the new rule for hospital price transparency. And a lot of hospitals aren't complying with the rule. They're ignoring it. Some are trying to make it difficult for people to actually find the, the pricing information that they've published. 
What's your perspective and thoughts about where we're at with price transparency and where we're going next with that? Well, I think this hospital price transparency rule is a, is a game changer because for the first time, hospitals are posting and they're required to post their cash prices for procedures, their negotiated insurance prices with each insurance plan that, provide, that provides and pays for these different types of procedures in their facility, and as well as their Medicare rates, which is you know, what the federal government pays for their procedures. And what it's showing now, first of all, like you said, hospitals are required to do this under the new federal rule. Since January 1st, it went into effect. Now we're seeing a lot of hospitals not comply. And so compliance is improving, but it's not been universal by any stretch. But we are seeing many hospitals comply with it. And what it's revealing for the first time is this massive unjustified price variation where some insurance companies will pay two times more than others, five times more than others. Even I've seen up to 22 times more than others for the exact same services. And so this unjustified price variation is being exposed for the first time. And right now it is hard to understand in a lot of cases, hospitals might make it hard to find, or they might not make the information really easy to understand. So your everyday consumer won't always be able to understand it, but you're gonna see a lot of vendors get on board with scraping this information off hospital websites, making this publicly available, making it searchable. You're seeing um, one company called Turquoise Health is doing it. Another called Health Cost Labs is also doing the same thing. So check out their websites and you can see that this price variation is just astonishing and it's completely unjustified. And frankly, it's absurd. And it's causing patients and employers to ask questions saying, why should I be required to pay more for the same thing than some other patient is being required to pay? So I think it's a super important thing. I think it's a great step. It's a giant leap in the right direction. We do need more enforcement. So hopefully that compliance will improve. But already it's been an astonishing revelation to see these prices and the price variation published for the first time. Well, Marshall, thank you for joining us in the race to value. We believe that healthcare financial literacy is an important part of the value-based care movement. How can our listeners find out more about the great work that you're doing and access your book, Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win? Thank you so much for having me here. As I mentioned before, you can find me on my website, marshallallen.com and sign up for my newsletter there. I'm also really active on LinkedIn. So people can message me on LinkedIn, reach out to me there. And as far as getting the book, it's available in lots of places, Barnes and Noble, amazon.com has a great discount on it right now. I think it's discounted by 35% on Amazon. I really appreciate you all having me on the podcast. I love and appreciate what you're doing. So thank you very much for this opportunity to, to talk about my work. 